We are back. Hopefully, I sound better this week. New oh, microphone. Tim, I sound good to you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now okay. we're on the radio, bit. Okay. See, there we go. I got this, <laughs> got this old mic working. So, uh, finally, finally, uh, had to go to, had to go to te- plan B as far as the, uh, the equipment goes. But we're good. We're good. Well, we're handling. One of us knew that there was a MIDI control. You just told me about this. Yeah. I did not know. We've been sitting in front of Max for 25 years. <laughs> and one of us knew that there's some, this whole MIDI yeah. thing in there. So, yeah. Know, news to me. It's weird. It's a, yeah, there's a MIDI controller. So, uh, figured that out and got it all working. So here we are. Um, and, uh, we should talk first about the, uh, the passings in the last week and a half. There were four, the most momentous obviously being Olivia de Havilland. Uh, well past a hundred. What was she? Almost a hundred. Uh, she just turned a hundred and four, hundred and five, whatever it was. I, I, I lose track after a hundred. Born in 1916 in Tokyo, Japan. Of Isn't all that places. crazy? Olivia de Havilland. Yeah, um, the whole thing there, her sister, all of that, and and, and that. And I'm Team that. Joan. I'm Team Joan. You know, I I've, I've uh, always been Joan Fontaine. Uh, and and Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland didn't speak for the last gosh, what was it like, uh, uh, fifty years of their lives or sixty years of their lives, but. Uh, Joan Fontaine always used to joke, um, she will probably, about Olivia, she will be furious if I die, if I, when I die, or if I die first, because I did it first, or something to that effect, you know, she'll be just, furious. Just, just like that Oscar. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, That's it. anyway, anyway, I, I, I'd like to say that, you know, the passing of an era, but in reality, uh, you know, most of that era had already passed. I think oh, that, that uh, era, that era passed 20 years ago. She yeah. was, Basically, when Catherine Hepburn died, that was sort of the end of that era. She was technically the last of the the, the star stars. But yeah, Betty Olivia, Davis among them, yeah. uh, Joan Crawford among them, yeah, 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 those. Yeah, they all kind of held on, in, and the directors too. You know, uh, Cooker and Capra. They all kind of held on into the eighties, but not not long past. Mm. And Olivia De Havilland was the exception. She just stuck around. She just stuck around. I mean, if there's a, you know, people have been talking about their favorite Olivia de Havilland films, uh, and Little Foxes always shows up there. I'm gonna say Snake Pit. Oh, yeah, very, very good, sir. You know, I, just cause I like movies about insane asylums, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh she's really, really good in it. You know, she could have hammed it up and just played crazy, crazy, but she doesn't. She's really, really uh, we, Olivia- al- we also lost, um, Alan Parker. Oh you man, did. we now we had we had an interesting conversation about Alan. We were having a really interesting conversation online, especially with Ray. But but let's weigh in because Mississippi Burning is the film that always always comes up because that was his last best chance at winning an Oscar. And when the, you know everybody kind of felt like here it is a civil rights era movie, you know it's it's got its conscience and it wears it on its sleeve and it's stylish. And then all and then people came out and said, well, me being one of them, yeah, you know you got a couple of you got Hoover's FBI as the heroes in this film. That's not quite how things unspooled. And next thing you know, it all everybody turned around. They ran the other direction, and Rain Man won Best Picture. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, for one thing, I love Rain Man. We were talking about that a little bit too. Tom Cruise's performance in Rain Man uh, has been one of the, has been, to my mind, one of the greatest performances uh, on screen of, of of my era as a as a as a film critic. I think he's just extraordinary. It's funny because people always talked about Dustin Hoffman's performance, but of course, Dustin was doing that cheaty thing. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, I can play Rain Man. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, so if I can play it, it ain't acting. Uh, but I couldn't do what Tom Cruise did in that movie. But but nevertheless, um, uh, Mississippi Burning, of course. And, and and of course, you know there is an issue. And even and even uh, what are we talking about now? This is 1990. What uh, that we're talking about? Oh boy, that was not uh, 1990. Ninety. This is nineteen ninety. We're, we're talking about. So, uh, we're talking about eighty eight. Eighty eight. So 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 more than thirty years ago. Um, um, uh, it, it, but you know, and Alan Parker, of course, not being specifically from not being from America, and filtering that civil rights movement, uh, and ultimately, black folks, generally speaking, looked at that movie and what what we I remember calling it uh, a great filmmaking, but wrong filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, that, that Alan made the wrong, not a bad movie. He made the wrong movie. Uh, because if we're talking about the civil rights era, and, and Rob Reiner would do it, would do it too, um, uh, a, a few years later, uh, uh, the, what was the one, you know the one that Rob made with. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 the, uh, the, 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 yeah. Yeah. With, with Alec Baldwin, Whoopi Goldberg, yeah. about the killing of Megger Evers, where you take this thing, this, this, that, that happened in the black community during the civil rights era, and you make a movie about the angst of some white dudes. Yeah. Uh, as they deal <laughs> with you, you, you mega Evers is dead, but we but we made a movie about Alec Baldwin and how and, and how he feels. Uh, and then we have J. Edgar Hoover's FBI agents, Willem Dafoe, uh, who, Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman, was Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman, Willem yeah. Dafoe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, roaming around the South diligently trying to solve the <laughs> these murders, which just did not happen. And so, but good filmmaking, yes. Wrong filmmaking is what I call that one. The Commitments, of course, is my favorite Alan Parker movie. God dang it, that's a good movie. It's a great movie. I mean, Birdie, Birdie, uh, for me, it's probably between Birdie and Midnight Express. Uh, Midnight Express was a revelation to me. Uh, I, and one, I was, of Danny, one of Danny Trejo's first movies, Midnight oh Express. Oh my gosh, Midnight Express was, was a revelation. That was 1978, and, uh, you know, Oliver Stone's screenplay. But yeah. a, a, that was one of those moments where, uh, a, there was, it puts distance between, Alan Parker put distance between what he was doing with film and what was, ha- what had been happening, you know, just five, ten years earlier. And I, I, it was, it was a revelation the way that he edited that film, the music, the Giorgio Moroder music. It was just, it was a devastatingly different kind of film. And, uh, I, I, it, it, you know, it changed me. I, I kind of position Alan Parker between Spielberg and Kubrick. And then this was the comment I made to Ray, which is to me, Alan Parker is Spielberg with grit or Kubrick with heart. Mm. Kind of sits between the two. There's an austerity. There's a, there's a toughness. There's a grit, but there's still heart. And, you know, Spielberg is schmaltzy and Kubrick is cold as ice. And yeah. And, and no empathy, uh, uh, uh over the there. Alan Parker. And, and, you know, I just, I, I loved Evita. Um, oh, you know, Angel Heart. Oh my gosh, heart. Which another one that that got unfairly maligned. Oh uh, yeah, it's because of the whole little thing with the uh, yeah, yeah with Mickey Rourke and and the sex scene and uh, whatever. Yeah, uh, and and you know Mickey Rourke and Robert De Niro have been getting into it again. Did you you've been following that? No, I have not. Uh, bring me up to date. Mickey and Robert De Niro hate each other's guts. <laughs> they they are so antagonistic. It is unbelievable. Uh-huh. Uh, and Mickey Rourke, it all goes back to that movie where Robert De Niro didn't want to actually talk to Mickey Rourke. He would like do scenes with him and then leave. He just dissed him enormously. And Mickey Rourke has never forgiven him for that, for being just kind of a pop star. So recently, Mickey Rourke went on a Twitter tirade. I don't know if it was under the influence of anything or not, but he went on a Twitter tirade. <laughs> He was laying into Robert De Niro like nobody's business. Oh, it was merciless, just re- unrelenting. Like I'll I'll meet you out on the street, you sob. Come on, bring it. It was that kind of stuff. It was calling him out. It was it was crazy. 
so Angel Heart was real, man. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and you know, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know whether Robert was just, you know, method acting uh, as he used to do back in the day. You know, he used to do that crap back in the day. Method, you know, he you know, stay in that character forever. Uh, and Mickey was just affronted by that. You know, wanted to pal around with Robert De Niro and sure. Yeah, you know, but Robert De Niro was the senior, you know, sort of, you know, relatively speaking, in 1986 or whenever they would have been making that movie, Robert De Niro was the senior actor. He was the senior figure, uh, in there. So, you know, plus he was playing the devil, dude. I mean, come on, it has to be said. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Who else, who else, who else did we, we, um, Wilford Brimley. Oh, Wilford. He was only 85. Now, and, and when you find that out, everybody starts doing their math going, wait a minute. He was how how the hell old was he in Cocoon? He's in his fifties. He looked like he he been like he's been eighty five for the last forty years. Yeah, he was one of those guys that had that face. He looked like eighty in the natural. Yeah, he was that in the natural and and Wilford to me, my favorite Wilford Brimley role is is because he comes in at the end of Absence of Malice. Yeah, uh, and he he just just rolls into that movie and he just. Eats the entire movie playing that old lawyer who's just going to sort all of this crap the hell out. You got Paul Newman in that scene. You got Sally Field in that scene. And Wilfred just rolls in with that, with that country drawl of his and eats that scene alive. He, 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 he just takes the whole movie away from everybody in that scene. You know, it's funny. Um, my wife knows a number of people that worked on him, worked with him on movies. And uh, another friend of mine uh, was uh, was with the distribution company of, a, of one of the last little indies that he made about, oh, 15, 16 years ago. And um, and, and, the, and everyone said uh, that Wilford Brimley was every bit the cantankerous curmudgeon in real life that he was with his characters. That's who he was on set, and everybody kind of kept their distance, and you were afraid of him. <laughs> you were afraid of him because you didn't know if he was just going to pop off at you. You know, uh, this, this line, this, who wrote this line? <laughs> Why are you putting the camera there? I'm not going to do that. You find, another, some, find somebody else to do that. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, That's he was just you're, that. You're that in guy. the right. You're in the right. You're in the right. The thing, he played the doctor in the thing. People forget yeah. about that. Uh, 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 so yeah, you know Wilfred Brimley. And what was it he used to sell? He used to sell. Uh, 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 he used to sell authentication. That's Dun- what it was. Yeah. <laughs> and and there there are some, there are some really really funny. If you go on YouTube, there are some really 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 funny mashups where people have done that thing where they cut together pieces of his commercials to to some song. Like somebody took all these pieces of Wilfred Brimley. And they may, and they did it to Ice Ice Baby. So it's Wilford Brimley <laughs> basically doing Ice Ice Baby, except instead of saying Ice Ice Baby, he says diabetes. <laughs> diabetes. It's, I, I, it's, it's beyond hysterical. It is, oh, oh, it's so off the chart funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and then it's we lost, because we lost, we had to, to, you know, talk about people from that group, because yeah. we lost Dennehy, uh, Brian Dennehy, who right. two, three weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, I guess we lost Richard Farnsworth in you know, four or five years ago. Well, well it actually, might have been longer. It was right after the straight yeah. story. Yeah. Um, uh, all those. So, you know, again, uh, these cats in that range there, you know, 75 yeah. to 90, 95. That's a group. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, we started to lose the British ones a while ago. You know, uh, well, uh, they drank uh, a lot. Yeah. Alan Bates and all those guys. <laughs> they cheated themselves out of the last 15 years. Yeah. Oh, boy. 
they left the last third of their careers in uh, on the counter in a pub somewhere in, uh, in Bristol. Um, anyway, and then we also lost an executive. Tom Pollock died on Saturday, uh, former uh, head of Universal Studios, really an, a legendary executive and producer and attorney. Um, you know, Tom Pollock uh, is the guy who actually got George Lucas his Star Wars merchandising deal. Everyone forgets wow. that. We think of him as a producer and a studio executive, but as an attorney, he's the guy that wrote the contract that made George Lucas a billionaire off yeah. of toys. Yeah. I mean, had the foresight. Really, Tom Pollock, a, a giant uh, who, who sadly, I think, retired from the business way too early. We could have really used him in the last 10, 15 years. Um, that kind of savvy pushing back on a lot of the these really uh, ill-advised corporate moves and whatnot. But anyway... There it is. So uh, we're going to get into to a few movies to recommend. Uh, there is not a lot of new stuff. We're going to mention one new movie, and then uh, and then I'm going to uh, roll through a, a bunch of uh, classic stuff that we've got here, uh, notably from Arrow and more from Kino. Kino is just giving us all kinds of great stuff. One of the Kino films has my mother-in-law in it. <laughs> um, rather prominently, I might add. Uh, so I'm going to give that a plug too. But first off, we're going to talk about Body Cam, which uh, is a a strange, curiously timely, such an odd movie. Uh, really well made, directed by uh, Malik Vital, and uh, written by uh, Richmond Riddell and Nicholas McCarthy. This is a Paramount release. This is one of the last new films that Paramount actually got out. It didn't get into theaters, obviously. Uh, I covered this on Film Week. And, you know, um, you think Mary J. Blige. Mary J. Blige, you got an Oscar nomination. Why are you showing up in some generic cop movie? Ooh, it's, so, it's so odd. It's so odd. And, and it turns out this is a supernatural movie. It's a, it's a supernatural horror film masquerading as a cop film or vice versa. But, um, it, it, it completely goes off the rails in kind of a good way when, you know, she and her partner go out on a call and then suddenly some horrifying supernatural force murders her partner. And now we get into a story which is sort of like a supernatural variation on the George Floyd death in a very strange, timely way. This movie was made, keep in mind, probably end of last year. This just happens to be purely timely, and it and it was released uh, before all of that stuff to um, to streaming. So it's I, I don't want to give you any details on it, but Mary J. Blige is very good in it. The movie is you know it's genre, it's genre, it is what it is. Um, it's not it's not going to you know be memorable uh, six months from now. But Mary J. Blige is terrific in it, and. Uh, it does kind of plug into the zeitgeist in a, in a very, very curious way. So that said, uh, also some really, really good performances from the supporting cast in here, it, including uh, Anna Canoni Rose, who is almost unrecognizable, mm. Matt Wolf, and uh, David Zayas. So uh, check it out. I'm curious to see what Malik Vital does going forward. Uh, got a lot of style, a lot of skill. We'll see if he stays in the genre realm or tries to do something a little bit, uh, a little bit more expansive. Um, okay, I'm going to hit these. Uh, oh, let's talk about the Criterion right now, Tim. We got a Criterion here. Bruce Lee, his greatest hits. People, how? <laughs> people have been waiting for this for the longest time. Here's what you get. Criterion finally gave us a Bruce Lee box, a Bruce Lee box set with 4K digital restorations. All this is Blu-ray, but they come from 4K digital restorations of The Way of the Dragon, ah. Game of Fist of Fury, and The Big Boss. 
basically the first four biggies. Everything that precedes and, and kind of lives in the, in the immediate vicinity of Enter the Dragon without Enter the Dragon. There are so many extras on here, interviews, original footage of, of, of Bruce Lee. Um, there's, uh, there's even, uh, the 1981 film Game of Death 2 included oh, yeah. as a, which is terrible. Um, but it, it's, what's so interesting on this especially is the, uh, the 1973 Bruce Lee, the man and the legend and Bruce Lee in his own words documentaries from 1998, which, um, which, uh, here's what the advantage of this. It's not just the films. You get a complete portrait of who Bruce Lee was, what his philosophy was of life, of fighting, of martial arts, all that stuff. And you realize that, that Bruce Lee, and we've talked about this before, Bruce Lee was the first major crossover artist, period, in, 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 in music, movies, entertainment, anything. Mm. He was the first guy. This is the, this is, he was the first artist who transcended a nation of origin, race, language. Mm. Mm -hmm. He was popular in Asia. He was popular in the Middle East. He was popular in Europe. He was popular in the United States. White audiences flocked to see his movies. Asian audiences flocked. Black audiences made him a god. Mm -hmm. Audiences flocked to see him. He he broke down barriers that nobody else has, has really been able to break down since. What makes Bruce Lee so special? Well, you know, at, at the center of it, there there's this nexus where you have the, the martial arts, obviously, but Bruce Lee was the epitome of cool. Uh, Bruce Lee was cool in the same way that uh, Richard Roundtree was true cool, uh, in the same way that Ron O'Neill was cool. Uh, plus martial arts. Uh, he was, he was, a, he was, he was a man's man, Bruce Lee, you know, which, which you know, we talk about the late 60s, early 70s, all, all of that, uh, Bruce Lee. Um, while at the same time, he was a ladies' man, uh, Bruce mm. Lee. Uh, yeah. So, so, so really, you looked at Bruce Lee and you just had it all. It was just all right there. There's a direct line between Bruce Lee and, and Rudy Ray Moore's Dolomite. Kind uh, of. Uh, right. a direct there. line between Bruce Lee and, and, uh, and, uh, Jim, uh, uh, um, yeah. Uh, the direct lines are right there between these guys. Sometimes literally direct. <laughs> they're like they're like they're together. So that's what you get when you got when you have Bruce Lee. And then there was that philosophy, particularly that particularly appealed to you know young folks of our age. Start talking about the yeah. late to early seventies. You know when we're when we're thirteen, fourteen. I'm thirteen, fourteen anyway. You're a little bit younger. And uh, and and these guys and these and this this philosophy uh, that came uh, uh, from Bruce sort of dis distilled for us. Uh, was something that we could understand and deal with. Dude, I was a fake kung fu expert <laughs> when I was when I was twelve years old, and then I actually took some martial arts lessons. And, and uh, <laughs> I I I got into martial arts uh, early on because of Bruce Lee. I made my own nunchakus. <laughs> my mother, thinking I was out of my mind, I went and took a couple of old um, broomsticks, you know, like 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 just sawed them right off. And then I, I dr drilled holes in the ends of them. And then I got these eye screws and I'm pouring liquid concrete in there and I'm putting the eye screws in and then I'm <laughs> the bolt cutters and I'm cutting up some chain and I'm bending the chain. And my, and I, here I am in the garage putting this thing together. And my mother's like, what, on, what are you doing? What is this? And then I start whipping those things around. She's like, okay, not in the house. <laughs> I hit myself in the head with them and almost knock myself out. So that's, that's oh. what Bruce Lee did to me. Love it. it love it. Love it. Love it. Go Bruce. All right. 
I'm going to hit some uh, some of these Arrow titles here real quickly. We've got uh, four titles from uh, Arrow Academy, which is their Criterion-y line, the more legit kind of stuff, not the exploitation stuff. And uh, The Mad Fox is really, really interesting. This is a Japanese film by Tomu Uchida. And I had I, I am not familiar with Tomu Uchida, and I thought I knew all the great Japanese directors. And uh, this is the first time this has ever been released outside of Japan. And it's really, really interesting. And I'm not sure why uh, Uchida didn't become more famous uh, outside of Japan. I It doesn't make sense to me at all. But um, this is really a very, very interesting film. Um uh, it's almost poetically mythical. It takes place in medieval Japan, and it's all about a uh, a prophecy by a uh, one of the shogun's astrologers. And it's it's a devastating prophecy. It's 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 a forecast uh, uh, that, that that threatens the realm, uh, as it were. And um, it's about what that does to people. And, and it's really interesting because you look at it in a historical context with, you know, uh, anyone who might proclaim to be a foreseer, a seer or a prophet or whatever it might be, uh, their forecasts, do they become self-fulfilling or do they, do they, uh, kind of create their own weather in many respects? It's a really, mm. really interesting psychological, um, film and it takes some fascinating twists. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. It has a great commentary by Japanese cinema scholar Jasper Sharp. Uh, and uh, I really, really recommend this. This is really fascinating. It comes from the Toei Library, and it's a beautiful, beautiful transfer. Yeah, it's a beautiful film too. I mean, that, that period in Japan, but this is that's actually gorgeous. I've been watching the trailer; it's just absolutely stark. Starkly it's, beautiful. It's, I don't know why I've never heard of the film or Ochita before, but it's a wonderful get. And bravo to Arrow Academy for doing it. Mm. Uh, we also have America as Seen by a Frenchman, which is a film by Francois Reichenbach with a great score by Michel Legrand. And, uh, this is, this is a, a, this comes at the end of the 1950s when French documentaries were, a, you know, really kind of just a cool thing. And, um, uh, Francois Reichenbach adds to that by, uh, you know, I mean, he's a very famous guy in France, not necessarily known here. So he basically came to the United States and he just uh, traveled around for a year and a half. And uh, this is the most unusual film that you could imagine because it really is America as seen by a Frenchman who looks at us and just thinks, boy, you you know, you're, you're nice people, but you're a little odd, aren't you? Yeah, America is seen by a Frenchman in, you know, 1959-1960. So the America of 1959-1960, so we have to think about that for a second. Um, uh, Yeah. You know, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, uh, so yeah, so it's very interesting indeed. Yeah, it's a good film. Uh, not a lot by way of extras on it, but, uh, you know, there's a, there's a a little presentation by author Philip Kemp and some, some, uh, some stills, but it is still really, really worth checking out. Um, also, Hiroshima, a film by Hideo Sekigawa, which I am familiar with, loosely familiar with. This was made in 1953. And, um, uh, obviously it is a, uh, it is a, um, it, it's, it is a, it is a, it's based on, uh, the, the, on eyewitness accounts of, uh, of Hiroshima, the dropping of the bomb. Mm. Um, and, uh, many child survivors are involved in this and it's, it's, it's loosely associated with, with a book or, and a couple other uh, works that were written shortly thereafter. So, um, you know, it, this was an academic production. It was produced by the Japanese Teachers Union, and uh, the um, 
so you, what you have basically is almost I don't want to call it a crowdsourced film. It's not. It's it is a it is a legitimate document, but um, it really is. It 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 brings it close uh, in in many respects in ways that the news and the newsreels don't. So really quite a vital film uh, has has a, a seventy three minute documentary extra on it called um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki Download from two thousand eleven, which is a is a wonderful. Also has interviews with survivors on it, and um, definitely check it out. It's it's really good. Uh, it's a wonderful historical document. Mm. And then the last one here is uh, Life is a Long, Quiet River, one of the most beautiful French films of the last, good grief, I, I, I mean, 40 years maybe. Um, really a, an absolutely terrific film. Uh, it's a just wicked, dark comedy by Etienne Chatillier, who, who never made a, a better film. This is easily the best thing he ever did. And uh, it's kind of like a, cla- a comedy of manners, a comedy of class manners, um, but it's dark, and it all centers around a, a baby switched at birth accident, which is it winds up being just the most. This is just one of those bitter French comedies, one of those dark, bitter French comedies. Like if Bunuel were funnier, this might have been the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Ah. Film were 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 more of a biting satire. So that's, that's kind of what this is. But it is a really good film. It's won a lot of great awards, and uh, it's worth checking out. Life is a long, quiet river. Really, really a great film. On the uh, exploitation end of things, we have a great boxed set here. As long as we're on uh, Japanese films, uh, Solid Metal Nightmares: The Films of Shinya Tsukamoto. And uh, Shinya Tsukamoto is uh, one of the very, very best all-time um, uh, genre filmmakers in Japan, mainly because of the films Tetsuo the Iron Man and uh, Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer. If you've seen those, you know, oh, wow, this guy has just a dark, psychotic, cyberpunk vision. He also made uh, Bullet Ballet about 22 years ago, which is uh, just, uh, it is exactly that. It's a bullet ballet. It is operatic. It is violent. Um, it's just absolutely insane. And uh, all of that is included here, along with stuff like Kotoku, Vital, uh, The Adventure of Denchu Kozu, Haze. I mean, it's really, really just a, a sensational box set. It really, really is. And... Um you want to, you want to, you, you, a snake of June is on here. You want to check this out. The uh, solid metal nightmares, the films of Shinya Tsukamoto. But mainly, what you're seeing this for are the uh, the four great films: Tetsuo and Tetsuo Two, Tokyo Fist, and Bullet Ballet. Those are the four that make this set an absolute must own. Um, Zombie for Sale is a little bit insane. This is a. <laughs> It is. I mean, like, I don't know what it is with Koreans and zombies, but, uh, you know, we've, we've had, like, uh, uh, Train to Busan. The sequel's coming out soon, too, by the way. Yeah. The Train to Busan sequel coming out. Um, so, I, look, it is a, uh, this is basically the story of a vegetarian zombie from Korea. I don't, I'm not going to tell you anything else about it. It's, it's from Mars. It is totally weird. Uh, but there it is. You know, it's got, it's all kinds of social commentary. Most Korean films tend to be really, really allegorical that way. And there it is. Uh, oh, John, all that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's all, all allegorical. Um, Black Rainbows, Mike Hodges film with Rosanna Arquette, Jason Robards and Tom Hulse. 
that uh, dates to, I think, the late 80s, right? Didn't he do this in the late 80s? 89, yeah, 88, 89, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Mike Hodges, of course, uh, really never made a better film than uh, Flash Gordon. I know some people say Get Carter, but I'm a Flash Gordon fan. Uh, but nonetheless, he took a he took a turn here into a supernatural thriller, and um, it, it's okay. Uh, you know, generally speaking, it, it it has its chills and it's got its moments. And Roseanne Arquette is fine, and Jason Robards kind of phones it in, and Tom Hulse was you know still trying to figure out what he wanted to do after Amadeus. Yeah. Uh, we also have Bloodstone, which is a Nico Masterakis production directed by Dwight Little. Nico Masterakis made all kinds of crap. And uh, this is another one of them, you know, just mostly exploitation stuff. This yeah. is um, the only thing that is noteworthy about this is this is the first and to my mind, the only English language role for superstar Rajni, the, uh, the, the Indian star of uh, many great insane Tamil movies that friends yeah. of mine all see on their opening day, uh, otherwise known as Rajinikanth, but he is superstar Rajni to the tens and hundreds of millions of people that worship him, and he's in this, and he's not he's not yet bald and old and fat, so... <laughs> you know, like, this is like late 80s, yeah. Yeah, you can enjoy it, Bloodstone, but it's it's not a very good movie, it's just, it's it's, it's more sort of knockoff Indiana Jones stuff. Yeah. Um, and then the last two here, uh, Dream Demon, director's cut. Uh, I'm not really a fan of this, but I know some people are. Uh, this is from 1988. Yeah. Kind of a, kind of a, you know, mid-level supernatural thriller at the time. Uh, has tons and tons of extras and interviews with people uh, from the cast and the filmmakers and, you know, the producers. It, it's, it's all loaded up with stuff. Has a cult following. I, I don't, I don't know. It's not really my, one of my favorite things, but it's it's you know it's, it's a young Timothy Spall is in that movie, dude. It's, it's a British, it's a British genre film, so I guess that makes it more respectable. Yeah. <laughs> Gothic too. Timothy Spall hammers his hand on a nail in Gothic. It's uh, you know he's made some weird stuff. Uh, and then the last one, back to our Japanese exploitation, is Inferno of Torture. You gotta love those Japanese titles. Uh, Teruo Ishii made Inferno of Torture. And, uh, this also is from the, this is, what is this, late 60s, I think it was? Like 68, that he made? 69, yeah. Yeah, uh, anyway, he, he made a lot of really, really twisted kind of S&M-y horrors, sexualized things. Yeah. And this is another one of them. Uh, it's exactly right along the lines of everything that he's done. It's, it's, you know, uh, nude women and tattoos and torture mm. and sex. Yeah. And, and that's Tattoo all you need. Geisha girls and little. Yeah. Yeah, outfits. Yeah, that's what he did. That's his, that's that's his style. <laughs> so anyway, he uh, if if you like that deal, if you know who Teruo Ishii was, then you'll probably love the film. If you don't, honestly, I highly advise you not get into it. And then uh, before we get into a little bit of television, I'm going to just mention some Kino titles here. We got three great Kino box sets: Carol Lombard Collection Number One. The Audie Murphy Collection and the Tony Curtis Collection. Uh, these will keep you going as long as lockdown and quarantine are still uh, putting the crimp in your in your in your style. No Man of Her Own, Man of the World, and Fast and Loose are the three films from the Carol Lombard Collection. Carol Lombard, one of the great beauties of all time, one of the mm. great ladies, oftentimes took uh, too much, perhaps, of a of a, 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 a second. Uh, kind of pulled up the rear with a lot of her leading men. She was, you know, with Clark Gable, and she was with William Powell, and uh, you know, she let her leading men oftentimes lead the way, but by the end of the movie, you usually wind, you only wind up remembering Carol Lombard. Yeah. Uh, 
she was just luminous and extraordinary. And uh, these are a, a couple of few of those movies, if I'm not mistaken, are pre-code. They're all three pre-code. They're all they're all pre-code. And, and you, you want to see Carol Lombard and and some of the costumes she wore in those pre-code movies. Basically, she wore a lot of slips. <laughs> <laughs> And and they were just they were just so sexy, beautiful blonde, of course, with the with the hair, and they were just like I said, pre code, uh, and, uh, and very often she would get wet. So Carol there Lombard, you go. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Uh, Audie Murphy, of course, was a World War II uh, legend. He was a, he was a, a war hero who won the uh, Medal of Honor, and then uh, parlayed that into a movie in which he played himself, and parlayed that into being a Western actor. Yeah, and, kind of, because Arthur Murphy never could act, but okay. He, he, he can't act worth a lick. But you know what? If you're a fan, you'll enjoy the movies. Yeah. No, no name on the bullet, Ride a Crooked Trail, and The Duel at Silver Creek. They are all strictly B-movies starring a guy who had no business being in movies other than the fact that he was a war hero. So there's kind of a, there's kind of a, a fascinating nostalgia about that. Uh, Tony Curtis. Man, I'll tell you. I'm watching a lot of Tony Curtis movies again lately. Yeah. <laughs> Never got enough credit for being a great actor. Oh, wonderful actor! He's and funny, uh, Tony. He could do it. The range, all. the range, yeah, was amazing. He could do it all. He just didn't get enough credit. These are three films that are kind of minor Tony Curtis films, but you know, I, I'll tell you, he's great in all of them. The Perfect Furlough, The Great Imposter, and Forty Pounds of Trouble. Uh, they are a lot of fun. Uh, all three of them, and uh, Forty Pounds of Trouble. Which is one of those kind of wacky screwball comedy, uh, family comedies where, you know, it's the girl, the little girl is the, is the 40 pounds of trouble and the little girl is really the thing you're looking at. But I'll tell you, Tony Curtis and Suzanne Plachette, that's a great pair. That's a great pair. That's a great pair. Tony, that's Tony was one of those actors for, when he was very young, he was ridiculously beautiful, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, him, Cary Grant. But for him, it actually kind of got in the way. Uh, of his career a little bit, despite the fact that he was, that he was doing good work, he was a pretty boy. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, uh, and then you know a little bit later when the, you know uh, uh, when when that sort of went away, we, we we started to pay a little bit more attention. Now he also he also always had that uh, that that uh, I, I want to say accent. What was that? Was what was Tony? Was Tony was that Brooklyn? Was that the Bronx? Was, you know, it was kind of it was it was sort of all of the above. It was sort yeah. of all of the above. Yeah, yeah, you know, tough guy. And I guess I, that Bronx is born in 25, uh, 1925 in the Bronx, New York, and that was always there in his voice. So if you're watching Spartacus uh, and you hear Tony Curtis speaking uh, with that ever so slightly Bronxian thing, that could be uh, distracting. But when it was correct for 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 a film, it was a wonderful thing. And when he would get rid of it all together, as he did in that Sidney Poitier movie, you know, where they're you know, you're the one uh, running around, and he has that Southern accent. Uh, then that's when you knew Tony Tony Curtis could actually act, and he was, oh, he was so really, good. really good. Love, love Tony Curtis. So good. Well, let's let's do some TV. Uh, let's bounce into into a little bit of TV, and then we'll come back to the other movies later. All right, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna bounce around a little bit. I'm gonna start with the incredibly obvious because I did not realize that South Park uh, has it, is it's in its 24th season. We have here the 23rd season of South Park. And man, I can remember when. That's amazing. It's It's just astounding. It's gonna, it's gonna end up being like the Flintstones or something. Uh, 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 But you know, I can, I can remember, you know, that 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 VHS videotape was floating around. Uh, The one set doing Christmas with, uh, it was just, you know, people would have fifteenth generation copies of that VHS that they. This was like nineteen ninety six, ninety seven, when that was passing around. And here we are, twenty three, twenty four seasons later. 
Um, uh, so anyway, is there anything that these guys can actually put on, on and to be honest with you guys, I quit, I quit watching South, South Park 10 years ago. <laughs> I don't actually watch South Park anymore. Um, is there anything that these guys can put on that, uh, that, uh, that season 23 that people haven't already experienced or is it, uh, not, uh, not really. I, I still recommend the, the audio commentaries from the first, uh, the, the censored audio commentaries they did when they first released it to, to, to DVD. Yeah. That's, that's the funny stuff. That's the yeah. really funny stuff. But there's just nothing left to say anymore. The shows, the shows push every button imaginable. What are you going to do on a commentary? Yeah, yeah, and it's, you know it's interesting because you know, other, you know the, the the South Park movie, uh, and then of course they did that sort of Team America thing that they did with the uh, you know with the puppets or whatever they were, uh, but really not a lot in by way of production and feature film territory, um, uh, you know out of Trey and Matt. Uh, I just thought there would have been more, more like a Seth, more like a Seth what's his name kind of kind of thing. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Seth MacFarlane. Yeah, yeah, I I expect them to do more, but I guess they they just put it all on. I mean, there you know there are. Uh, it's it, there are commentaries in all the episodes, but they're not. It's it you know it's it's a little dry at this point. But I'll tell you, man, they 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 keep it going. And I think it was Mark. You know, Mark knows uh, one of the one of the producers or one of the former producers, and they they crank those things out. I mean, if you get if if something happens on Monday, they will have a full South Park episode by the following Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Particularly if you consider how the technology has changed since 1997, 96, 97. Uh, what we do, I mean, that, that, a lot of that was, I mean, it was like literally hand drawn, uh, back then. And then to the extent that there was any computer technology applied to it at all, um, uh, it, nothing like, like what we do today. What we do today, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's fairly simple animation. Uh, but that animation added to today's technology, I'm not surprised that they can care. This is mostly about the voices, isn't it? You know, yeah, it's mostly about it the is. voices. Um, there's a whole lot of NCIS business here. So you got NCIS season 17, you got NCIS New Orleans season six, NCIS Los Angeles uh, season 11. Dude, the damn NCISs. Who would have thunk? Uh, I, <laughs> I, I am pulling there them all out here. There they are. Yeah, are. you know. See, NCIS is, uh, this, this is, this is kind of what we get from CSI, right? CSI started this. Yeah. And then Dick Wolf said, hey, I could do that. And then he gave us Law and Order, like 20 of them. And yeah. then we have the Chicago shows. But NCIS really has done a very, very good job of keeping it going as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of astonishing. I, and I guess, I guess the lesson is that audiences like the universe of a lot of these shows. They like what it does. They like uh, what it creates for them. And um, they get the right actors in it. Now, of the three, which do you think actually works? Do you think all three of them work? Do none of them work? There's only one, two? How how do you rank them? Well, you know, the original NCIS uh, was the one that that I paid the most attention to. I don't know that I ever bought NCIS New Orleans with Scott Bakula and all these all these folks walking around doing these fake southern yeah. accents, you know, except for Lucas, uh, uh, Lucas, what's his name, who was actually from down yeah. south, so, so he sounded real. And, and, and But, you know, everybody else had this sort of like engage and being from New Orleans, and that always sort of distracted yeah. me. Uh, our buddy Sherman uh, did, uh, I think Sherman's done all, all of them, but he, he definitely he did an NCIS Los Angeles not too terribly long ago. Uh, but he didn't have to do the accent because his character was from L.A. And then, of course, he did an NCIS Los Angeles. That's the one with LL Cool J. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been around forever. I think that one lives in a world that I buy the most. I buy I that world the most. I I think I think uh, the one. That, I mean, look, I like Mark Harmon. I've always liked Mark Harmon, yeah. but 
I never really got into NCIS. It was sort of like, okay, I'll, I might watch an episode or two because I like Mark Harmon, but it never really hooked me. But I agree. I think where it really, really comes together is is somebody had the very smart uh, idea. Let's put uh, Chris O'Donnell and LL Cool J together as a team. Yeah. Let's make that a, a TV buddy cop thing. And it works. Oh, yeah. It really works. And, uh, I, you know, I was never a Chris O'Donnell fan before. I was always an LL Cool J fan, but always felt like they never found something for him to do. Like he showed up in Toys, the Barry Levinson Toys. Oh he was yeah, terrible. way way back in 1990. Yeah, that was his first sort of thing. Good, yeah. It just wasn't good. You're like, oh, okay, you know, you're really that's just not working. And somehow they, this is it. This is it. You know, they both have a groove. They have a great chemistry. The writing is solid. I think NCIS to Los Angeles is the one where the idea really, really comes together. Well, what's ironic is what they got going there. It's that original lethal weapon thing. It is. Uh, they're, they're, they're like the young, uh, and, and it's funny because they're playing, they're playing characters, uh, because, you know, LL is like this, uh, you know, uh, a fatherly character yep. in that show. You know, LL, the gangster rapper yep. kind of guy. He's like the dad figure. Where Chris, who, if I'm not mistaken, has something like 15 kids. I'm talking about the actual Crystal Donald, right? He's, yes. he's, just, he's like 15 yes. kids. He's it's a huge family. A lot of kids. And he's playing, and he's playing, and he's playing the Lucy Goosey sort of Mel Gibson yeah. guy in this movie. I'm like, that's the way you do it. You play the guy that's opposite, yeah. uh, uh, relatively speaking, of who you who you have to walk around being in your real life. Yeah. And then you and then you have yourself some fun doing it. So that's all of them. Uh, a lot of stuff. So NCIS 17, season 17, NCIS Los Angeles season 11, New Orleans season six. Is what we're and there, right? next to no extras, just featurettes here and there, you know, nothing really spectacular. But I'll tell you, it's quite a universe they created. Kudos to them. They did well. My mother uh, loved that stuff, yeah. What about Hawaii Five O, the final season? It's done, Tim. They finished it. Dude, done. Ten, year, 10 years, 10 seasons, 2010 is when the show kicked off. And I, and I, 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 I don't know whether I was a guest on the podcast or what back then, but I, I remember specifically saying, what the hell would you do this for? <laughs> what, what, why are you messing with my Hawaii? Because they, they, they started messing with a Y50 and they started messing with Magnum PI and they, yeah. and they just, and, and dude, I was livid. I was just livid about all of it. But you know what? This is why I'm not a television executive because yeah. every one of those shows has been on for multiple seasons now and people seem to love them. Um, I don't think that they're loved by people from our generation. You know, you, know, you and I grew up, you know, Hawaii Five-0, you know, Jack Lloyd. Uh, yeah. And I'm sorry, if, 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 unless you bring in Jack Lord back from the dead. I think he's dead. Is he dead? I hope he's dead. Yeah, Did I dead. kill him? Okay, good. He's dead. I didn't kill him. And, um, but unless you bring in Jack back, then you know, then no. <laughs> I'm not yeah. watching a Y50, and so I never did. So, you know, that's what I could say about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Well, you know, as long as we're talking about old shows, I'm going to, I'm just going to lay it right out here. I'm a Wonder Woman fan. Oh hell yeah, Lin- dude! Linda Carter. That's I. Uh, all due respect to to you know Gal Gadot, uh, who is a terrific Wonder Woman, but Linda Carter will forever be Wonder Woman to me. Yeah, and uh, and and you know what? Deborah Winger will forever be Wonder Woman's little sister. Yeah, <laughs> because there she was. And and let me tell you something too, because you know people poke. At folks about this. There was that wonderful movie about the guy with, the, with, with his wife and his girlfriend, the guy who created Wonder Woman. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a movie. I think who who was it? Was it yeah, it was it was, uh, it was Luke uh, Luke Evans played Luke the guy. Evans. 
It was Thank a year ago. I had to do that on Film Week. Yeah, it was it was a weird little polyamorous relationship that he had with a student and his wife, and they wound up living together in this weird polyamorous kind of you know uh, very shocking relationship for decades, like twenty some odd years, and uh, that that's sort of what the emphasis was. But the thing about the Luke Evans film, and I'll let, let you get back to it here in a second, is that you're watching this movie with Luke Evans and. Um, these two just screamingly attractive actresses. And they show you the actual photographs of the real guy and the real women. And you go, Oh, 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 they're just average and pudgy. And suddenly this is not so hot anymore. It's just all stopped being hot (laughs) through the movie. It was all so hot. But, but, and out of that comes this, comes this character, Wonder Woman, who for me as a kid in the seventies. Now I I get a lot of folks who look at that and they say, you got Wonder Woman. You got particularly the Linda Carter woman, uh, Wonder Woman, you know, with the, with the bustier and the little tiny waist and the little outfit. She's spinning around and all of that. And oh, that's sexist. Let me tell you something. Wonder Woman invested me with a respect for women and their power in the mind of a 13-year-old boy, right, uh, uh, that, I, that I got from Wonder Woman and Isis. Remember Isis, the other Saturday yep. morning? Yep. Those women, I get it. Yeah, they were sexy and everything. But you know what they were doing? Kicking ass and taking names That's is right. what they were doing. They were saving the United States of America. And, and, and notice that the show was called Wonder Woman. Lyle Wagner played the major, major whatever his name was. Uh, uh, yeah. On the show, and she and her guys, she was his secretary. But in fact, she was the one who was always saving the day. So if you're a 13 year old boy and you're watching this woman save the world, if not you know America anyway, every every Saturday morning, this is what I'm watching. And yeah, she's blazing hot too. I'm sorry, dude, that played out in my life in other ways. To me, women were the folks who saved the world. That, Every Saturday morning. That did not w- happen in the 1960s. This is a fundamental difference between the 60s and the 70s. If you grew up in the 60s, you grew up watching Men Save the World in westerns and in cop shows and whatever it was. You were watching, yeah. you were watching, uh, Dragnet. You were watching, uh, The Wild Wild West. You were watching Bonanza. Bonanza. Yeah. 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 One Adam 12. All that stuff. All that stuff. But, but what happens in the 70s primarily, yes, are three things. Wonder Woman and Isis. And I'm going to throw a third in there. The Bionic Woman. The Bionic Woman, uh, and let's not forget about Charlie's Angels. That's about nineteen Charlie's Angels. There you go. That's uh, as well. So all, and we grew up on all that stuff. All that stuff. Yep, it makes a difference. Well, Wonder Woman is out in a complete Blu-ray collection. Uh, all beautifully newly remastered. I've been waiting for this for years. I've been looking at all my old DVDs for the longest time. And, uh, boy, they really did a great job putting the, uh, putting the, remastering them on Blu-ray. They are just sparkling and colorful. The red, white, and blue in the, in those, that fantastic credit sequence just all yeah. blows up on her, on her uh, costume. It just blows up. And I'm not kidding you. Deborah Winger as Drusilla is a hilarious Wonder Woman's kid sister. She's a little pudgy. She's a little clumsy, but she knows how to spin around and get the outfit on. And uh, that is just an absolutely terrific kind of a cameo. It launched her, and uh, she would be nowhere without that. It's really, really terrific. You get a season three episode commentary by Linda Carter here, which is absolutely wonderful, uh, as well as on the pilot. 
and uh, three really, really cool featurettes that just give you all of the, I mean, basically making the points that Tim and I just made, which is, you know, Wonder Woman is a feminist icon, and uh, and how the show came together. I mean, really, really great stuff. So it's a lot of fun. Wonder Woman, the complete collection from uh, Warner Brothers in D.C., newly remastered on Blu-ray. I cannot highly recommend this enough. It is just great. It's unfortunate, if this was supposed to coincide with the movie, the Wonder Woman 1984, that was supposed to come out, which is now delayed until the holidays, hopefully not longer, but, uh, you know, it, it's out, it's not coinciding with the movie, but it's out there, so make make a go of it. Man, you can still catch Linda Carter running around uh, the current day Supergirl Sing. series. Yeah, yeah, the singing thing too. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Jack Ryan season two, man, um, uh, is here. Um, oh, I, again, you know, you and I, we, we you know, Tom Clancy, uh, Jack Ryan, uh, you know, the perennial character from that series, which for you and I, I had, I had been reading those books in the late eighties. So yep. familiar with Tom Clancy, and you know, I was I was kind of into that. So uh, when they did that first film, which I guess is going to be what the Hunt for Red October, is that right? Uh, yeah, is that, is that the first that movie treatment? That was the first. Right. Yep. Alec Baldwin and all that kind of Hunt for Red October. So this is going to be late, you know, eighty nine, ninety, something like that, thirty years ago. Uh, you, you know, and and you know, again, familiar with those books, thoroughly loved that movie, and then we watched that series over the next thirty years continually metamorphosized itself and it gave us Harrison Ford as Jack Ryan, it gave us Ben Affleck as Jack Ryan in one of those movies, Some of All Fears I think was that one and and, and on and on and on and and then finally sort of made its way out of the feature film realm, those kind of movies stopped getting made really is what happened Uh, but yet uh, it, it fixed itself up so that it could live inside the television world episodically I would not have. I would not have put John Krasinski. Would not have been my first choice. No, no. You know, he works through it. He pulls it off. Uh, Wendell Pierce in the series, and you know, and, and, and this is and this is season two. But no, um, um, uh, yeah, just no, not in my head. The guy from uh, what was it? The Office. He's, he's one of those Office kids, right? If I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's where he began, and he's been trying to shed the office persona ever since. Yeah, you know, and look, you, 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 well, you know, directing those Quiet Place movies, and and but you know, I still cannot say that when I look at John Krasinski, I see this hero um, uh, who saves the world. Um, now, the way he, he he's chosen to play Jack Ryan, as opposed to uh, the way Harrison Ford or even Alec Baldwin, for that matter, played him, they always played him as literally this nerd. You know, it was like the point of the thing. I'm just a, I'm just an analyst, you know, yeah, 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 right. and then they, they would be pressed in, into having to, you know, grab the gun and do the thing. He doesn't really play him that way. Uh, he plays him as a guy who understands the gun and is perfectly happy and ready to go out there and, 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 and you know, knock some guys out and kick yep. ass, as you say, sort of changing that persona. They put anything on that box set, man? No, not, not especially. It's, uh, it's kind of, you know, yeah, it's 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 pretty much just dry, and it's the show, and uh, you know they got deleted scenes, and that's about it. No, no. that's about uh, it. it, it uh, the the um, the Good Doctor um, uh, season three. Um, uh, again, you know, um, when this series first started, it started watching it, and I kind of thoroughly enjoyed it. I did. If you had asked me if it's going to hang around, you know, for three or four seasons, I, no. I, I said to you, how, how far can you get with this guy? Because this is based, this is based on a Korean soap opera, by the way. People yeah. forget that. This is actually based on a, uh, an adaptation of a Korean serialized drama, like a, like a telenovela. And somehow they turned it into an ABC medical show. 
Yeah, yeah. Which uh, which people which people seem to like. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I, I, I was good for about a half a season on it. They put anything on that box? Nope. Deleted scenes and bloopers. That's it. Um, Orange is New Black season seven. This is still this is the final season. And, uh, you know, I, I never quite got into this, but I think you're a bit more of a fan than I. Well, you know, I, I did the performances and, and, and whatnot have been good. Lots of recognition from Emmys over the years from that. And, and that's the show that created some, uh, you know, created some new stars. Uh, it, it was the sort of it show that because the way it was constructed. Uh, it had to put a diverse cast in that in that prison. You know, you couldn't have you couldn't have a prison full of you know yeah, you, can't. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do that. So so suddenly you you have all of these people and they get a, and they got a chance to show what they could do. And a lot of those folks are you know they're working all over the place right now. So I uh, it, 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 you know look I capped out on Orange is the New Black two, a couple of seasons ago, but I deeply appreciated what that showed. It did the same thing for women. Did Oz, if you recall Oz? Sure, of course. Did, did, you know, was set in that prison, probably 20 years ago now, uh, was Oz. Ah, So Orange is, yeah, the same kind of thing. Yeah, interesting. Ernie Hudson on Oz. Lock it down. Lock it down. Uh, what else we got here? We got, uh, His Dark Materials. Did you watch His Dark Materials, the uh, first season on HBO? I did, I did, I did. It's, you know, you know, I have a ha, have a thing for a sort of mystical, magical series that have at the center of them little girls, uh, uh, particularly little girls uh, who are on, on a uh, a mission to find their dad, which is what's going on in that series. She's looking for her dad, uh, and you know, it, it, the it, the interesting thing about that series, you think we think about something like uh, you know Tolkien's uh, you know uh, series, yeah. uh, Lord of the Rings, all that, uh, or, or or even. Um, um, uh, some of the other stuff that came out of the 30s and 40s. This series here isn't that old. No. Uh, and, the, and, and the guy who created it and wrote it was a junior high teacher. Uh, you know, who's, you know, and, and he's just sort of created all of this stuff. So it's sort of, it's sort of interesting. And I, and I kind of dug it. Who was supposed to do the, the big, the big feature film of this? Was it, was it Del Toro? Yeah, was it was Del Toro wanting to do this? I yeah. think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, Guillermo Del Toro. That's exactly yeah, and he yeah. was never able to kind of get it together. I don't know why, but it's uh, anyway HBO series. And I don't know why Del Toro had such a hard time. Maybe it was just too expensive. Anyway, it works. It works best as a series on either way. Uh, Twelve Monkeys, dude. Yeah. Uh, now, when I think about Twelve Monkeys, of course, I think about 1995. Twelve Monkeys, one of the to, to me one of the best time travel yep. films ever conceived, based on the uh, who is it? The little French short film. What was his name? Oh, uh, 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 Yeah, Chris Parker. Uh, uh, and all of that, and of course, there's this wonderful um, uh, uh, on most of the DVDs for Twelve Monkeys. You'll find this documentary that goes behind the scenes of it. Yeah, uh, and it's just a really, really fascinating watch of how that movie, and and it's one of the examples where a produced Terry Gilliam, of course. Yeah, uh, and it's one of the examples of where a producer saved saved. Uh, a director, a filmmaker. It really shows you. You just have to watch the documentary. The, the producer of that movie saved Terry Gilliam from himself. You were, of course, talking about Chuck Roven, who yeah. produced, produced all the Dark Knight films, and for whom friends of mine used to work, and who was married to Don Steele, the former head of uh, Columbia Pictures before she passed from cancer. And Chuck Roven, who who is all over the hamster factor. That's the documentary on there. Mm-hmm. Um, you told me that before I even watched it. You said, watch it. Chuck Roven saves this movie from Terry Gilliam three times. Oh, yeah. And he does. It's really, it tells you what a producer can do when he's on his game and why a producer needs to be on top of the director. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Terry Gill was, you know, very important, powerful director at that time. But Chuck Roven was just a little bit more powerful. And yeah. uh, and that and when you have an inversion, sometimes uh, that's when you have directors who do goofy shit, as Terry would go on to do uh, yeah. several times later. Imaginarium of Doctor Parnas. Yeah. And all of that. Um, uh, now, this, of course, is the television series. <laughs> yeah. Twelve Monkeys, uh, which has you know been been around for a while now. I don't know. Again, um, um, I was yeah, look. I love that movie so much. I shied away from the series. The series more or less lives in the same space as the movie. Yeah. Uh, in terms of who the characters are and what they're doing, um, and uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's I don't need this television series, but there it is. Uh, my uh, my good friend Natalie, who was um, uh, showrunner for a couple of seasons of Queen of the South, which we also are talking about today, was also yeah. showrunner for at least a couple of seasons of, of Twelve Monkeys, I think. And um, so I, I'm partial to it. I have a bit of a conflict of interest. I just I you know I like seeing friends from film school uh, succeed, and oh, yeah. uh, so especially especially the women because you know it's it's harder for them but uh you know uh, 12 monkeys has its moments i do think it's a it's been a fascinating show so anyway that's the the blu-ray from mill creek of the complete series and uh does not really have a load of extras on it it's got some you know cast auditions which are kind of interesting but otherwise uh uh it's just the it's just the show and um you know it's amazing that a french short film made entirely with still images by an art house guy like chris marker winds up becoming a successful television series in the united states it's yeah. a weird weird road <laughs> do you did, uh, are you going to keep this Paddington Bear series for 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 hero the Paddington Bear? So so you know Paddington the, her first film actually was it was Paddington. Um we didn't we couldn't get her to sit for all of it. She was like 2 or something at the time. So it was it was you know it was a press screening and they started late cuz some idiot was you know late and they held the film and if if they hadn't held it for him her patience would not have worn out. So we would have been able to see the whole thing. Nonetheless she responded pretty well to Paddington 2. And uh, so I haven't shown her the animated Paddington yet. Um, we'll see how that goes. But I, I do. Th- I am going to hold on to it uh, and let her get a look at it. I didn't really have a great appreciation for Paddington. This is a very, very you know, rudimentary animated show. Uh, it, it just, you know, it, it, it's, it's not sophisticated. Uh, it goes, you know... It, it's very obvious. Skew's very young, but having seen the, the feature films, the live action feature films, I think I have kind of a newfound appreciation for it. Uh, it, it certainly is is a, a nice addition to the Warner Archive collection, and that's Paddington Bear, the complete series. Um, yeah, it's worth checking out. I mean, if you have kids, if you have small kids, it's uh, it, it, there's a lot of nice life lessons, and it's cute, but it, it definitely feels a little bit dated. Uh, you know, but I guess I, I guess it needs to be. The original books were written in the 1950s, so I like how quiet it is. It's such a quiet series, yeah. Uh, um, um, as opposed to you know, almost any sort of contemporary animation where it's it's constant movement and sound, constant movement and sound. Everything is so busy now. Yeah, it's true. All the Pixar stuff is really, really busy. I mean, I love it, but man, it never stops. We just never watch stops. We watched Toy Story 4 last night, and as much as I love it, it really is frenetic. That thing is just j- all over the place. Yeah, things are always moving. Someone is always talking. Music is always playing. Um, um, and usually all of them all at the same time, uh, but certainly in, in some combination of, as opposed to that little Paddington series, there'll be, there'll be, there'll be 10, 15 second stretches where there'll just be a music cue 
and Paddington sort of walking along. Nobody's saying anything. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Uh, as long as we're talking, we're, we're shouting out to Natalie. Uh, Natalie did not have anything to do with Queen of the South fourth season, but I'll make a mention of it. That is out now as well, Queen of the South, the uh, complete fourth season. She left after season three. So this is the first season without Natalie. I wish I could say uh, that it's still a good show. It does feel a little long in the tooth at this point. i got to be honest. It's um, Most of the shows are all based on drug deals now. You know, on drug cartels, narc and yeah, yeah, narc and and yeah, and they're all they all they're all kind of starting to overlap in my head a little bit, and I don't know how much you can actually squeeze out of this because Ozark is kind of taken it's sort of taken over that space, but in a much more interesting way. Um, because it's not set specifically in the world of the drug cartel. You know, that last third season of Ozark kind of merges the Ozarks with Mexico, and it's. It's very interesting. Mm. So uh, it doesn't leave a lot of space for these shows to necessarily do anything new because they've already done everything they can do. That said, um, it, it makes a good effort, and um, it, it doesn't completely run aground. It's just, it's just more of the same. But uh, there it is, Queen of the South, fourth season, uh, 13 episodes on three discs. Good, good, good. Uh, let's see, what else have we got here? Jet. Which 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 jet is this that we're oh, talking about? This is this is uh Carlo Gugino's jet, natural born oh. thief from Cinemax. Yeah, this is uh, you know, I like Carla Gugino. I don't know why she she went to television. She could have still had a really, really big film career, but I guess, you know, television's a, a steady a steadier paycheck. Um yeah, this is this is no this is you know uh, she plays a thief on this show. If anybody hasn't seen it, Cinemax doesn't get like the same traffic that HBO gets. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of a, a modern film noir series uh, about a woman who you know has to has to sort of result to being a, a super thief. It's got some good stuff on it. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito is very very good, and um, yeah, but it's basically you know you're watching it for uh, you're watching it for Carla Gugino. And I love her. I just oh, yeah. I'd like to see her. I'd like to see her in movies again. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, Evil was a series that I actually watched the entire first uh, season of. Uh, it, it was actually sort of sort of interesting. So you have this guy who's uh, who's a priest and this woman who's a uh, who's a psychiatrist, and the priest hires her to come work for him uh, to to uh, discern whether or not people who seem to be possessed by demons are in fact possessed by demons or you know in, engaged in some sort of a psychological break. Of course, just for she's concerned, they're always involved in some sort of a psychological break, and uh, it, which he's fine with. But then there are all kinds of strange things that happen. I, I like. You have sort of a classic, um, you know, the, the, the network television series sort of build, but the acting and the writing is so good. And what I like about it is that it never uh, lets either side off the hook. It will not give in to him, uh, this this sort of Catholic priest, uh, and it will not give in to her, uh, this sort of uh, pragmatic psychiatrist. So here's my question. If if Mike Coulter forever lives in my mind as Luke Cage, am I going <laughs> to buy him as a priest? To be honest, you will because he's such he's, he's so soft spoken uh, in this film. Yeah, yeah, okay. he's there with that with that Mike Coulter body. But he's <laughs> so soft, 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 soft spoken and sweet in this in, in this movie that you kind of buy him uh, okay. as this one time priest uh, who you know is still a true believer, but uh, on working for the uh, Catholic right. Church to do this kind of okay. thing. So kind of interesting that 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 series. I watched all of that, man. The Sinner is in season three. Uh, I didn't. I, I don't think I ever really quite processed that Jessica Biel 
was behind this, and she's now a mom again. She and uh, JT just had another kid, another little boy. So congratulations to, to them. But uh, good on her. I, I, you know, this is a this has been a great kind of late career, late stage thing for Bill Pullman to do, who did a lot of movies and a lot of really fun stuff, and he's older now and more grizzled. So now uh, he gets to play a detective, as they all eventually do, and uh, you know, upstate New York detective. And um, it's a it's he, it's all really about. Matt Bomer's in this too, and he's very, very good. But it really is. It's a Bill Pullman tour de force, you know? You forget what a great act. He's, he can be so funny and he can be so presidential, but you forget that he's got a real edge to him as well. And yeah. uh, does a really, really good job here. This is uh, uh, one of those fascinating, you know, uh, down the rabbit hole crime things. It's not quite true detective, but it's not bad either. So The Sinner from Jessica Beale is executive producer. Season three, still strong in season three. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Is this is this is this a film, The Room? Uh, this uh, that sort of hard drama. Is that that movie about the people about the people who, who who move into this house and there's this room they go into and they get all these that's they, the they get all these. That's the one. That's, that's kind of a creepy one. ass little movie. I talked about yeah, that movie on, on the radio Shutter. show. It was from uh, Shutter. Uh, not bad at all. That one. Uh, um, uh, that, Olga Kurilenko and uh, Kevin Jansen's. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's 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 spooky. Um, Olga Korolenko, I think, is a is a much better actress than she gets uh, credit for. But yeah, that's what it is. They uh, they they move into a into an old house and find this secret room with uh, with with magic powers to sort of make their dreams come true and to materialize things. And uh, next thing you know, careful what you wish for, because you might get. It. <laughs> uh, we all know how that how that turns out. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a creepy idea. Shutter original. Shutter's coming up with a lot of interesting stuff. Curb your enthusiasm, man. It just keeps clocking on. Tenth season, and it's going into its season eleven now. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's just amazing to me. Larry David, man, he's been a part of television history for like the last thirty years. Oh, good. You got all that Seinfeld, all that Seinfeld. And even yeah. before that, he was on uh, Fridays. Yeah, he goes back to Fridays. I mean, he's just been Larry David. Has has uh, somehow managed to stay at the top of his game on television. For three decades, and, and not many people can say they've done that. I, yeah. I, I don't know anybody that's been able to do that. Bill Cosby might be the only other person who ever managed that feat. Hey, he, I mean, and, and it continues to be relevant all through all through the last political season. In any case, because you know, some people just stumble into things. And Larry David playing Bernie Sanders on SNL on all that SNL. I mean, it's like they just built that for him. Yeah. Crazy. Well, season ten, I, it's more of the same. I mean, you know, you got all the same people. Jeff Garland's uh, losing a little bit of weight. That's nice to see. And Richard Lewis is is still hanging in there. Uh, and Ted Danson and John Hamm and Vince Vaughn all kind of show up as guest stars. But otherwise, it's still the same show, and it's still sharp, and the writing is still good. Uh, yeah, yeah. The basketball wives. I've never understood it. Never oh got gosh. it. It makes no sense to me. I mean, it's 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 like a you know a sort of wives so, or any of the wives. Doesn't have basketball wives. So you, you pick the wives uh, that you want. Uh, and it's but you know there it is. Basketball wives. People love these things, be they reality shows or or constructed as narrative yeah. sort of shows. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, and you and what what can I say? I can't do it. I just can't do it. I I, I kind of can't either. But um. You know what? I mean, the husbands make money playing basketball. They may as well do something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they might as well parlay that into into something. They all they're all gorgeous. 
Oh, that's right. Look, but look, most of these, first of all, these are the wives of basketball players whose careers have been over for like decades. It's some of them. Shaquille O'Neal's wife and, and Doug. Like, so it's like, you know, basketball wives of, of lore. This <laughs> is what this really is. Uh, but you know, whatever. People love their soap operas, so what are you gonna do? So, did you, did you watch The Outsider on HBO? The Stephen King? No, I missed that one. So, I mean, this is really interesting, um, because it kind of went under the radar. You know, we, we grew up in the era of the 80s when, when Steve, everything Stephen King was a, uh, was a movie and it was every other month. It was just yeah. like, they were making Stephen King stuff left and right and left and right. And now Stephen King sort of, apart from it, uh, in chapter two, he's become kind of a TV guy. And, yeah. um, this is, uh, this is his novel, The Outsider, adapted to a, to a, a, a suspense series, basically, which is all about the investigation into the murder of a boy who, who's found in the woods of Georgia. And, um, Jason Bateman plays the, um, the high school teacher who is the prime suspect here. And he's really amazing. And I hadn't realized that he had done this somehow in between seasons of Ozark. And he's so different. I mean, you for, you know, Ozark is a very Jason Bateman. It's very him, much him doing that understated thing that he does. Mm. Totally different gear here. He's he's really compelling. And Ben Mendelsohn, who usually plays the bad guy, plays the good guy here. He plays the detective. So it's a really kind of a fascinating. It's really interesting casting, and um, there is an additional twist to it here that I'm not going to tell you about. Uh, you got to watch it. Uh, but it's it's a it's very very good, and it might be the most interesting uh, adaptation of Stephen King that I've seen since the since Cronenberg uh, made The Dead Zone. Mm. I, I it just it really is very compelling. It's really interestingly paced, and uh, it's you know it's nearly five six hours long, but it's really really interesting. So they they take their time and they really really let it build. The Outsider, um, really a terrific Stephen King adaptation for for HBO. Also want to make mention of um, some other stuff here that might just go under people's radars. This this wacky thing, traditional wild America duck. Oh, hunting. I was wondering what the hell that was. Traditional wild America duck hunting on the Santee Delta. Um, this is this is not uh, Duck Dynasty. These are these are actual guys who are duck hunters. They are not bearded and they're not making millions off of duck calls or whatever. They're just <laughs> they are just literally there in the Santee Delta in South Carolina, telling you, explaining to you how to do duck hunting and. Um, it's really it's it. I got to be honest. I I because I was only accustomed to the Duck Dynasty guys, which is not about yeah, the duck or anything no. else. It's just all soap opera. There, there's a lot to duck hunting. These guys are conservationists. They will yeah. tell you exactly. We are not out here to just destroy the population. We're here to control the population, and this is what you do to take care of the delta. And and it's it's really quite it's really quite interesting. It's a whole world and culture, and it's all it's really interesting. Yeah. Besides that, duck is tasty. I love duck. I gotta be honest. Uh, How to be a gentleman, the complete series. Uh, I had not heard of this. This is a Paramount series and, uh, it's basically a kind of a mismatched buddy thing of sorts. I, I, 
I don't know. Uh, Kevin Dillon's on it, and I always look at Kevin Dillon, and I always think you're the other Dillon. You're not Matt. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's still basically the uh, the odd couple. That's what it is, and uh, it's cute. It's okay. Uh, this ra- this is about, you know, uh, nine or ten years old uh, from the from the, uh, the era of three-camera sitcoms when they were still just about everything on television. Now there's only a few of them left. Might come yeah. back someday. And then also, uh, Russell Simmons, uh, Higher Self Series presents the History Makers Collection. Um, this is, uh, hosted by James Avery. Did you watch any of this, Tim? A, little, a wee bit of it. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. stuff. The late, the late James Avery. Uh, yeah. It played Uncle, um, the, um, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of really, really uh, great stories here. Uh, I mean, these are these are basically uh, the life stories of uh, high achieving, famous uh, Black Americans in a whole. I mean, a lot of them entertainers, but uh, all all over the uh, all over the map. Uh, Dionne Warwick obviously is a, is a big one, but you got David Dinkins and Maxine Waters and Jesse Jackson Jr. and uh, you know Reverend Al Sharpton. They all show up on here. Harry Belafonte, Vernon uh, Jordan. Is is on here and, and it's broken down into three different uh, sections: success, faith, and courage. Actually, really, really a very, very interesting show. A lot of fascinating life stories and backgrounds, and it creates quite an interesting uh, tapestry. I was most fascinated by Dr. Alvin F. Poussin. Oh uh, yeah, Dr. Poussin. We he used to show up um, with Bill Cosby a whole lot of times way back in the way back in the day. He popped up on Oprah quite a lot. Uh, to discuss things relevant to uh, you know child, child psychology and yeah, and, and fascinating yeah. guy, fascinating yeah. guy. He shows up uh, twice here under success and courage. So uh, really, really, uh, really, really terrific. This is three discs. The History Makers Collection, hosted by James Avery. Boy, and I'll tell you, Al Sharpton sure looks young in this. <laughs> is, he, is that skinny? Is that skinny Al Sharpton or fat Al? Kind of, kind of. Yes, It's the hair. I always ah. try, not the weight. Yeah, so, the hair, by the way, for people who don't know, that I'll always points out is his homage to James Brown, uh, who was one of his mentors. So uh, the hair is not actually an accident; it's very much on purpose. I'm doing a Frederick Douglass thing myself right about now. <laughs> so we've got three in the uh, in the kind of animated and kids space right now. Uh, two animated, and then we also have uh, the Birth of Ultraman, which oh, yeah. is. Yeah, which is uh, effectively the oh, and and by the way, there's um, there is a, a an Ultraman comic that is coming out from Marvel Comics uh, next month uh, on the the birth of Ultraman. But this is the rise of Ultraman, uh, which was was done. When was this made? Uh, I want to say like ten years ago, but it might be might be longer. Anyway, you can never really tell. They all kind of look like they were made in the seventies. But uh, you know what? I I, I kind of feel like uh, here we here we here we go. This was the uh, the, the the this also oh oh you know what? This has an extra on it that I didn't watch. The mm. Burt Ultraman uh, pre premiere special from uh, 1966. I gotta watch that. I didn't. Oh I, wow. I, that, yeah, that's that's great. Anyway, I mean, look, you can't you can't go wrong with Ultraman. The Birth of Ultraman uh, is is a whole lot of fun. Oh, the live action Ultraman when I was you know, yeah. a kid, you know, late sixties, early seventies. It was it was, you know, uh, it, and it, every, every single one was the same. The, the, the light on his chest would start blinking, and he would have to fight. Will it go out before he can finish? Then he have to fly toward the sun to recharge. It was just all yeah. fantastic. 
It's it's a uh, it's a thing. Um, so the last year here, complete series of the Legion of Superheroes and uh, the complete first and second seasons of Final Space. So Legion of Superheroes is DC stuff. Uh, obviously, it's um, by the way, the, I, I did finally I forgot to mention I did finally finish. And this is going to be a little bit of a spoiler. Turn it off for thirty seconds until uh, I get out of this. I did finally watch the uh, the complete arc uh, of uh, across the the the, the Arrowverse of. Uh, Oh, yeah. The, uh, the, yeah. The, the, all of that, yeah. Yeah, the multiverse I series. Love, I love that they ended it on Super Friends. That we <laughs> had, I love the Super Friends homage at the end of it. That was a whole lot of fun. Um, so, anyway, I wish there was a little bit more of that in the animated Legion of Superheroes, the complete series, but uh, there isn't. It's still fine, but I'm, I do feel like they're stretching some of the, uh, the DC world, uh, the animated, the DC Marvel, uh, DC Comics world a little bit too thin on the, on the animated, uh, thing. Um, you know, this, this is kind of a short-lived series just as well. Um, I think about, you know, six hours is about, five, five hours is about all you can really squeeze out of it. Uh, the complete first and second seasons of Final Space. Is actually quite a lot of fun. Uh, we need more wacky space comedy. We need need more stuff that feels like uh, Family Guy and Simpsons in space, and that's a little bit of what's going on here. Uh, so hopefully we'll get more of this. I don't know if there's going to be a third season. I sure hope there will be. Uh, this definitely is is definitely fills a void. Um, in the few couple minutes we have left, Tim, I want to make mention of some Kino stuff. Yeah, yeah. Real quickly. Most notably, the wonderful movie, The Public Eye. Oh, wow. Which, with Joe Pesci, which is so underrated. My mother-in-law has a wonderful, um, she was an extra in this, but she's, she's like a featured extra. She's like. 1992. That movie, uh, that movie just really did not get the respect that it deserved oh, no. back then. The, the critical sort of respect that it deserved back, back then for a whole bunch of different reasons. But it's just really a sharp, sharp movie, uh, Joe Pesci and that Howard Franklin film. It's it's based loosely on the exploits of the photographer Ouija, who was a you know a, a legendary uh, freelance news photographer, crime photographer in the 1940s. And Joe Pesci plays the lead. It's fictionalized, of course. It's a little bit of a film noir, Barbara Hershey, the femme fatale. Uh, but boy, what a stylish, beautiful movie! It's so well made. Howard Franklin, such a good director. I wish he were still doing a lot of stuff. Uh, primarily a Bill Murray. Um, team guy, but uh, executive produced by Robert Zemeckis. Just a wonderful, wonderful movie. I, I one of the best films of the '90s. So underrated. The Public Eye with Joe Pesci might be the best performance Joe Pesci has ever given. Mm. Um, Sissy Spacek in Raggedy Man with Eric Roberts and Sam Shepard. This is from 1981. Also a really, really beautiful film. Uh, that I don't think gets enough credit. Directed by Jack Fisk, by the way. Yeah. Jack Fisk, uh, legendary production designer and husband of Sissy Spacek. Still does all of Terrence Malick's movies. Worked with David Lynch for a very long time. Jack Fisk's sister was David Lynch's first wife. Um, so that's how all that, all that plugs together. But Jack Fisk directed Raggedy Man, did a beautiful job. I don't yeah. know why he doesn't direct anymore, but boy, what a, what a lovely, lovely kind of rural poetry, uh, this is. It's, um, you know, Sissy Spacek as a as a young mother and and you know trying to raise her sons, and then this man enters her life 
it's it's just a it's a really really great film. One of those great nineteen early nineteen eighties films that we always uh, kind of forget about. Sam Shepard and Tracy Walter and just all all of the uh, young Henry young Henry Thomas. Yeah. Uh, yeah 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 fantastic. It's good. And this has an audio commentary on it by Howard Berger and Nathaniel Thompson. A uh, couple others here to, to uh, make mention of. Um, I'm going to pull out just these four. And we're going to go out on these four. First off, Diva by Jean-Jacques Benex, which has is loaded with extras. This is one of the great French films of the 1980s, also 1981. Has an audio commentary by Benex, who is terrific. I have met Benex. His former agent is a is a is a friend of ours, and we we actually spent a dinner at his house once. He knew I was a Benex fan, so he invited us over, and we sat there with Benex and his wife, and just had a great conversation at dinner. One of the highlights of my life having yeah. dinner. A private dinner with Jean-Jacques Benex, and he's a genius. He doesn't make enough movies, but that's his right. Uh, loads of stuff on here. There's uh, an, another audio commentary with film critic Simon Abrams. Vladimir Kosma, the uh, composer, is interviewed. Tons and tons of interviews here with with the actors and, and others. Um, it's just loaded with extras. It is a fantastic film. It is a highly stylish film. It kind of reinvented French film in the 1980s, and uh, it, there's just nothing like Diva. We yeah. also have Robert Duvall's Oscar-winning performance in Tender Mercies, uh, oh, directed oh, by Paris, yeah. by Horton. But I used to think this film was as slow as watching paint dry, and I kind of love it now. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it's wonderful. It's, it's 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 a beautiful movie, uh, and and illustrative because you know this is this is what like the early eighties, eighty two, eighty three, something like that. Eighty three. Uh, 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 you know, just uh, Bruce Beresford, man, just wow. You know, we forget about these people. He's 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 from that era too, that Alan Parker yeah. uh, era that we were talking about. He's one of, yep. he's one of those guys from that from that period too. Yep. Horton Foote, of course. Um, uh, the, the, the writer. Uh, it, incredible. Yeah. Uh, Lorenzo's Oil. George Wilford Miller. Brimley, of course, in that movie, oh, too. Yeah. Cause, cause yeah. Was, True. Anyway, well, yeah. Uh, Lorenzo's Oil. George Miller. The, maybe the one time that George Miller didn't go full genre. You know, George Miller has done animated films, Happy Feet, the Mad Max films, Witches of Eastwick, but he also made an incredibly moving movie in Lorenzo's Oil because he used to be a doctor and he was, he was motivated to, by the story of these parents who, um, did what the medical establishment could not do, which was make progress in finding a cure for the bizarre, strange disease that uh, is devastating their son. And um, Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon play the parents. This movie just brings me to tears. It is yeah. so powerful. It is so devastatingly beautiful. And George Miller directs the hell out of it. This is one of the best films of the 90s. 1992 was a, a great year, and uh, this is one of the best films of that year. I, I mean, I, I remember you and I just both loved this movie at the time, too. Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, a beautiful movie. Peter Ustinov, so the late Peter Ustinov. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, fantastic. And then uh, just uh, the last two here, Cry Freedom, as long as we were talking about Mississippi uh, yeah. Burning. Cry Freedom uh, caught a lot of flack for, for some of the same things, which is that here's a movie ostensibly, you know, this was Richard Attenborough's attempt to kind of get back in the, in the Gandhi groove, and he wanted to tell the story of, of Stephen Biko. But it's not mm-hmm. really the story of Stephen Biko. Stephen Biko was killed. Yeah. So this winds up being the story of Stephen Biko's friend, 
um, a journalist played by uh, Kevin Klein yeah. who has Donald to escape, Woods. Yeah. who has to escape South Africa to bring the story of Stephen Biko to the world. Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with that story, but um, and I do love the film. I especially love the music. But as long as people know going in that it's not the story of Stephen Biko, it's it's the story of a guy bringing bringing the story of Stephen Biko to the world, and it's kind of a it's sort of a one note movie. Yeah, Stephen Biko played by Denzel Washington, relatively speaking, young Denzel Washington, probably coming off Saint Elsewhere or something yep. like that. This is his first big kind of starring thing that that moved him from Saint Elsewhere back into movies. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, a movie I appreciate, but again, uh, wonderful filmmaking, uh, but you but, made the wrong movie with the elements you had you made the wrong movie so i'm gonna go out on this tim um the the original for a 4k restoration of the original uh 20, leagues under the sea from 1916 silent 20,000 leagues under the sea really a shockingly good movie 86 minutes long gripping has an audio commentary by uh, anthony slide film historian um this is a this is a, another one from kino and uh, a great new score by Orlando Perez Rosso. Just an utterly fascinating, fascinating take of the story that is quite different from the Disney film, which I just watched yesterday with Hero. She was terrified of the giant squid, finally mustered up the courage to sit down. We watched it. She wound up loving it. And then she watched the black hole right afterwards and meh. Not so much. Uh, that didn't uh, really. uh, but really, this is quite good. Um, it, it's it. You know, I had never seen this before. I obviously knew about it, so it's wonderful to see it kind of back to back with the Disney film. You realize how very, very different it is, and how many different ways there are to to do a telling of the story. But the production value at the time for 1916 really nailed it. They 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 did a great job. This is a, a beautiful transfer. So well, good on everybody there. Good on Kino uh, for bringing it to us. Universal's uh, incredible 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from 1916. Yeah, Audio not commentary. that long after Jules Verne would have written that story. Actually, no, true. You know? That would yeah. be that's like a like a modern novel at the time. Yeah. All right, well, that should do it for uh, for the next little while. Uh, we'll be back hopefully in a week or two, and and uh, with some other stuff. Tim, uh, what do you got planned this week? Any great anything huge on your social calendar? Uh, well, you know what? I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna sit here. When I'm not sitting here, I think I'm gonna sit over there, uh, and then and then I'll, I'll probably move back to here. <laughs> That's more or less what I'm gonna be doing. School actually starts back up for me. Uh, uh, teaching, um, I'll, I'll be teaching online. Um, a course that starts on uh, August 24th, uh, and it looks like I have a, I have enough students uh, signed up to. So I'll be teaching online. Uh, a sort of Zoom uh, course completely. I've always taught a little bit on. Zoom, you know, yeah. whatever. Uh, but it'll be the first time I've done it wholly and completely. So uh, I'm sort of prepping for all of that to see what happens. Great. Well, good luck with that. Hopefully we uh, we pull ourselves out of this uh, sooner rather than later. It'll be good to see your face again and uh, be good to get uh, get the shows back on a regular track again. But in the meantime, everybody stay safe. Follow whatever health and safety guidelines uh, you've got going in your area. And uh, we will see you guys next week. Make the hospital.